listening to the Mouthful of Graffiti Podcast. The mod, not to be mistaken for John Candy's half-man, half-dog character from 1987 Spaceballs, is a mouthpiece for Mid-Atlantic creatives. I'm your host, Brad Cox, the Mog Father, a name affectionately coined and given to me by conversations with Rich Bennett, and I'm here to let you into the Mog House. Let's see who and what we're chewing on today on the Mog. The Mog, podcasting from Underground Studios, aims to be an all-inclusive, all-things-creative networking megaphone, and with the amount of talent we have in our own backyard, I don't know that we'll ever have a shortage of good content and rich stories to tell. Everyone has a story that's uniquely their own, and it's the Mog's mission to unearth it. The Mouthful Graffiti Podcast started as a seed and couldn't have grown without the support of those who sponsored us along the way. We'd like to thank Musicland, Reb Records, Capricos Books, The Gone But Never Forgotten Black-Eyed Susie's, Vagabond Sandwich Company, Double Groove Brewing, and the Baltimore Decal Gal. Don't forget to use discount code MOGPOD for a 10% discount at Capricos Books. Everyone knows you can't stop by Main Street Bel Air without grabbing some fresh new wax at Reb Records, followed by a delicious lunch at Vagabond Sandwich Company. While you're in town, swing by Musicland for the latest in gear and rentals or a relaxing pint at Double Groove Brewing. The Sarah Evans Copy That Tour is coming to the APG FCU Arena on February 24th at 7.30 p.m. With hits like Suds in a Bucket, Born to Fly, and No Place That Far, this isn't a show you'll want to miss. For tickets, visit HartfordEvents.com. The Hip Play Ballerinas, blending their unique fusion of hip-hop and ballet, will be coming to the Amos Center on February 26th at 3 p.m. For tickets, visit tickets.harford.edu. Don't miss the Harlem Globetrotters 2023 World Tour, also coming to the APG FCU Arena on March 1st at 7 p.m. If you're looking for the ultimate fan experience, pick up a couple Magic Pass tickets. Grab all your tickets in advance at harfordevents.com. The Rock Spring Financial Group brings the American dream to life with hard work, dedication, and pride. Rock Spring Financial Group offers full-service mortgage loan options to either assist with lowering your interest rate, consolidating debt, or buying a new home. They maintain a local reputation with honesty, competitive rates, and trustworthy loan officers. Call Rick Metzger today. He's local and actually has an office in Bel Air, Maryland. Tired of speaking to loan officers from an online outfit? Go with the local folks at Rock Spring Financial Group. Give them a call at 440 440- 4-3-801-6389. It's 443-801-6389. They have a five-star rating on Google. Stop by and find out why. Today on the Mouthful Graffiti Podcast, I have the singer, songwriter, videographer, and the CEO and founder of the FundUp app, Mr. Luke Justin Roberts. He's an artist with an entrepreneurial spirit and has attracted quite the following in the Baltimore area with his pop rock fusion project, LJR. I discovered Luke through a video he posted on Instagram, and it opened my world to just what a driven and positive force he's trying to be. Sometimes a rarity in this modern-day travesty we call pre-dystopian 21st century. I've seen enough of Luke's videos to know that he's a man with a lot to say and get off his chest. So without further ado, join me in welcoming Luke Roberts to the MOG. Luke, welcome to the Mouthful Graffiti Podcast. How you doing, man? Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it, man. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You're joining me on Martin Luther King Day. I wanted to start the show with one of my favorite quotes. Hmm. Will we march only to the music of time, or will we risk criticism and abuse to march for a soul-saving music of eternity? Hmm. I thought that was a pretty strong oh, yeah. musical, awesome. musical quote there. 
Yeah, I love that. I'm That's not going to ask you to give me your favorite. Do you have one as offhand? The main thing I think of is like the I have a dream speech, but I, I don't honestly know a lot the more quotes. than just a, I have a dream that one day, you know, and then I kind of like don't really know the exact words of the rest of it. I love that one. That's probably now my favorite one. Um, Let it, me read it, it one more time yeah. because I totally fumbled it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it hit on a couple of things that I really liked. So, yeah. Well, I, I just typed into Google Martin Luther King music because I'm sure he had something to say, right? So it was, will we march only to the music of time or will we, risking criticism and abuse, march to the soul-saving music of eternity? Yeah. And I chose that one for you because we're going to get into your music and some of the outreach that you're doing with the Fund Up app. But I just thought it was a nice pairing as well as a nice quote to go with a musical podcast. Hmm. So before we get into this, though, you are a man with essentially three first names and an <laughs> alias. So which one do you prefer? It all depends on the context. I mean, my so my name is Luke Justin Roberts, right? right. Um, that's where LJR comes from. It's just the initials. Right. Originally, I was kind of branded with just the full name, with everything set out, because that showed up on Google, and nobody else had that. And I didn't actually like LJR years ago. I thought it was dumb for some reason. I don't know why. I just thought it sounded weird, like an L and then JR, but but the junior element maybe. Well, so it, I might have been thinking junior. I of course don't like the idea of like L junior, but I do make fun of my brother for like you know D junior. Yeah, obviously depending on, you know what you decide uh, the D stands for. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, Actually, I came up with that recently, but uh, and he loves it. And oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's funny. We all have like different, you know, terrible, you know, names for each other. Of course, which I, I won't, you know, share here. But that uh, that quote is is awesome for for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of the things that sticks out to me is just the way that. Well, actually, I'll back up to finish the other question. For just people who know me, just Luke is great. Yeah. Um, and then for my artist kind of stuff, like LJR, you know, is perfect. That would just kind of keeps it consistent, but. When people are going to find your music on Spotify, do you mm -hmm. find that they do have a hard time? Because they're looking up Luke Roberts. That's what I did originally. Mm. But there are some other Luke Robert artists out there because it's a I yeah. mean, it's a very you'd be a perfect country artist. Oh, my God. That's what they all say. Yeah. And Luke Justin Roberts sounds like a country yes. artist. It really does. And Even like LJR kind of sounds like a country artist. Well, there's there's AJR. I don't remember what style he is. I think it's more like a little bit more like rock. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of like potential overlap. And especially because a lot of my background growing up, I grew up in the, the evangelical Christian church. Yeah, that is why be... you're here, actually. Oh, it had nothing. I didn't know your music. I didn't okay. know the videography. What I saw, <laughs> I'm just scrolling through my feed and I see I, it was either an Instagram or a TikTok that had made its way onto Instagram. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was, it was a video about you talking about your evangelical, I guess it was ex-evangelical upbringing. And we have that. We have a parallel there that mm. we have to talk about. Oh, man, I am so, so excited now. <laughs> so that is why I invited you on. And then yeah, yeah. I started like looking. I was like, who is this guy? And then I started seeing all the music and, and all these things you're doing. I'm like, how do I not know this guy? So then I was like, I have to get him on. That makes me even more excited because, I mean, I love talking about all the like the strategy and the business and like the music and yeah. all that stuff. But, you know, kind of at the real core is, you know, who we are as people, because that's really what creates all the drivers for why we do things. Yeah. And that's a huge part of, you know, kind of where where I've come from. Um and so, you know, to go back to like the the country artist thing, it kind of 
Um, it's funny because there are a lot of overlaps between like worship music and country in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, so there's definitely some aspects where you can still hear that in some of my songs. Like I can't say I think has a little bit of like a country vibe mm-hmm. to it. Um, not the level of like where there's like more twang and stuff like that in my voice, but some of the, it's the um, vocal phrasing. Yeah, the vocal the phrasing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, some of that is honestly just like. It's like it's it comes from I think at least my inspiration is mostly from the worship music because it's it's easy to sing um, and it sticks in your mind and like for better or for worse like those are two of the best things that you could have in a song yeah if you want people to engage you know in it so while in a lot of ways I I wish that I didn't have that upbringing because of all the other stuff that had happened um, I also you know there's a lot of things I've learned to really you know appreciate and, and value over time and one of those is just like. I feel like I can kind of write some fairly singable stuff. And it makes it pretty easy to, to teach people too at concerts, which is pretty nice. It makes for very catchy music, which mm-hmm. the music is pop infused rock music, essentially, is what yeah. I would call it. Yeah. It's all driven on hooks. You need those hooks. So I think that's a really smart approach and a nice way to pair your upbringing with the music. Yeah. So did you want to go back to the quote before we move forward? Or Sure. Yeah. And just um, to kind of finish that loop there, one of the things I think is um, fascinating about it is, I mean, first off, there's just kind of the, the general idea that like staying the same is essentially like death, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is like, I think something in our lives in general to always be growing, always to be moving forward and always changing. That's a critical part of living what I think it, uh, a full life entails. But also when it comes to um, like music and music marketing, like that is a huge thing where if you try to just do what everybody else has always done, you know, you're going to get the results that everybody else has, has gotten, especially um, if that's, you know, nothing different from like the local scene. And this is very hard because you want to like break out and do stuff different. You also like, you know, want to be like on a team with the local community and like be part of that and everything. Yeah. And a lot of times people struggle to kind of like, really take steps outside of what is the norm or what is safe because it's a a lot to risk. But I think that's where kind of like this idea of like eternity lies. Um, And in a way, like we can talk about the interesting sort of symbolism behind, like there's almost like this idea of, you know, eternal life that Martin Luther King is getting into there. Yes. And so, you know, as, as we create, there's different ways to look at that idea. And that's one of the things I think, you know, is definitely part of living like the most fulfilled life, which is part of what I would kind of call like eternal life, like a constant change in this cycle of, of death and, and life. Um, and that's actually something we can get into a lot later. That'll be, it's very involved. And that's kind the of thing, thing about music. Music is eternal. You don't want to be stuck in a moment of time. Mm-hmm. You see these bands, and when you're talking about change, it's, it's a really important thing to bring up because they try to keep recreating a moment in time, and that mm-hmm. becomes their product. Like, really bad with the 80s bands, like L.A. Guns or Poison. They never showed an evolution of what they could have became. They just mm-hmm. kind of stuck in that moment, and that becomes almost a, an eternal dwelling place. It's not necessarily – like, I've always approached music like, okay, what's next? I've tried to recreate the old records because you got a lot of success off it, but I realized mm-hmm. you were just writing derivative versions – of something you already did. And it just felt, yeah, it, it kind of felt gnarly, you know? Yeah. So I have a theory on like why that is, why I, people do that. I love it. Um, and it's because of this idea of like change and growth. And I think it's centered on the fact that most people are afraid and of, of growing and of constantly changing because we spend so much of our lives trying to find some semblance of safety and security 
emotionally in this journey to try to know who we are mm -hmm. as people and where we fit into the world, that once we find something that makes sense, where we feel safe, we stop because anything else is kind of throwing us back into this like uh, chaos. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Yeah. And we struggle to find true peace in the uncertainty. And so this, I think this reflects when you have like an artist that is able to, obviously when you're, when you're young, you're really working hard to try to figure out who, who am I? Right. How do I express that the most powerful way? And that's and so, really tough when you're young. Totally. Yeah. But it's, and it's, and some of these artists that really get out there, I think a lot of them are able to do that really well, at least for like what, where they are in that moment. And they may not know that they're doing this, but they're just kind of authentically expressing and living this. But over time, and that could be really powerful, and that's the thing that draws most people to you who share some semblance of that experience, because you're saying powerfully, this is who I am, and they're resonating saying, yes, that's who I am too, I feel seen. We now, it kind of collectively forms this, this subculture around this identity. Yes. And then when you're at a concert and everybody's like all together in that moment, it's like this holy and sacred thing. They're basically like a church service, right? right? In a similar way, you've all got essentially this, this common narrative, this common story that you're all engaging in together, and it's, it's this sacred, powerful thing where you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. Um, and that's awesome. But since people are afraid of constantly changing or potentially losing, losing. who they were before, yeah. um, especially once they've found something, it's really hard to continue that process. But like actual creative work lies in doing that work and in constantly changing and evolving and, and growing. But I think if people get stuck, and sometimes this is not always like their fault. It could be like they're signed to a label that wants the exact same thing mm. from them for the next right. three and albums or whatever. And that right? becomes a business decision. Right. And you also get stunted like creatively. And this is part of why I think it's it's better overall if you can find a way to go independent, which you know we can get a lot into all the business stuff there. There's so many tools now that yeah. have just been democratized and are available to the indie artists. It's, you have to become a whole type of person to be able to take full advantage of all those tools, but it's very worth worth doing. One of the things that I found after my first record, the first record was punk, and punk culture is very tight-knit. And so we had a fan base that was just very all about what we were doing, and I had to take a gamble. So the next record was alternative rock and risk mm -hmm. alienating those people. <laughs> yeah. But the thing was, I didn't alienate all the people. Right. I only alienated a pocket of people, but then I picked up a bunch more people. Mm -hmm. And once I learned that, by the third record, I did it deliberately. I did an industrial record. You know, the trees shook, we lost some leaves, but we picked up more branches and more mm -hmm. leaves. So you have to just kind of trust the process and yeah, and take those risks because putting yourself out there in the first place was a risk. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what do you have to lose? Right. The very thing that you that made you successful in the beginning, you don't know why it is, but you're actually unwilling to do that same thing again because of the, the fear of loss. Do you remember that scene in Rocky Three? You've seen Rocky Three, not Rocky Three, no. Well, he's basically <laughs> at a point where he can't get himself to train to fight Mr. T because he had amassed so much success, mm. and he didn't want. He was at a point <laughs> yeah. where he didn't want to risk losing it. And Adrian finally like has a heart to heart with him on the beach, and she's just <laughs> like, "What do we have that can't be replaced? What?" And she finally, she was the one that was able to crack the nut. Mm. And uh, he was, it, it clicked for him finally. And then, you know, it's the montage and he's, he's ready and he, he ends up beating Mr. T. Yeah, yeah. What do any of us have that we can't replace? Well, so this is where we, we can replace it, but we have to believe in what's possible and what's within our power. If we don't understand the dynamic that put us there in the first place and why it worked, it's hard to reach out in, in faith 
again, um, like we did before. We don't realize that by trying to hold on to this old version of who we are and not changing and growing and expressing that new version, that we're actually doing the complete opposite of what made us successful in the first place. And right. so you have this stagnancy where if you're unwilling to grow and change, um, and yeah, you'll lose some people, but you'll also, like you said, you know, you'll gain all these other, you know, people that'll discover parts of who you are and come to really love that, you know, you're you're gonna miss out on a lot of what your creative life could look like. I think it's it's really sad because there's there's so much more that we can be than our our expression at one point in time. And if we've learned to do a really great job expressing that powerfully, but we're not always working on reflecting and understanding and moving forward and growing and putting ourselves in new situations, yeah, we're not going to continually have new work. This is actually part of why I saw that David Bowie uh, oh. documentary recently. He um, was brilliant at that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Moon Edge Daydream. Constantly I mean, like reinventing he would, himself. Well, he would also – he would intentionally move to different cities where he would think he'd be the most uncomfortable in order to see what would happen to his writing. He intentionally like stayed away from love relationships too, in order to make sure that he could like protect you know his work. Well, he and he'd also, always try to make yeah. himself uncomfortable. And he there's this quote, and I, I'll probably mess it up, but he essentially says that like the farther like in order to find the right creative place, you need to be going out into the ocean just and, and when you're just at the spot where your feet don't touch the ground anymore, you need to go a little bit farther than that because that's where you're actually going to yes. do your best work. Yeah, I recently wrote a song called I'm a Lie, where I, I basically tackled the idea of imposter syndrome, because mm -hmm. we all have it. So many guests come onto the show and they talk about imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people aren't honest about it. But the people that have been coming onto the show have been I was like, you know what, I've had it too. I'm going to yeah. address this. And it was so uncomfortable, because I'm basically telling everybody in the song, I'm not everything you think I am. I'm I'm a lie in that regard. You know, some of it's right. marketing. It's interesting, because it's so easy to feel, and this is, I think, where the imposter syndrome comes in. When you're striving for something, right? You are not yet the thing that you're striving for, and so you're. But you're also placing your identity in like becoming this thing, but you're not the thing. So when right. you talk about it, like of course, it feels like you're lying because we've we've also been taught that as as people, like our process is not really okay or acceptable, especially in all the messiness. Yeah, and so if we're not there you know, then we, we are again, like a lie. It's kind of this very binary thing as opposed to like, well, what, what if I've, what if I'm not that person, but I'm striving to be that and I'm doing everything I can to change, you know, where is that line where now I've crossed into quote, being that new thing. Right. And when is it dishonest to say what you are, right. you know, because maybe what you truly are is just the as yet unexpressed version of yourself that you are, you know, basically giving birth to. Right. It's fantastic. So typically, we would have done this in the beginning of the show, but we ended up going off on a, a pretty cool tangent <laughs> there. So I'm going to read the news real quick, and mm. then we'll get back into right. the podcast here. Transcendent Events has my guest, LJR, with Dead Like Disco, The Slang, We Are Not Spies, and Letterbox coming to the Record Theater on January 28th at 6.30 p.m. I wanted to get that in there for you. Have you played the record, and did you play the old Record Theater? Um, yeah, so we actually, the only one I've played is the old record theater. Okay. That was like back in like college days. Okay. I went to UMBC. So we played back there and uh, actually one of the other local promoters, Brian Smith, he was putting on the event uh, back in the day and he's still doing, you know, events yeah. around and stuff. Is he still doing the cantina? Yeah, he's still at the cantina. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes he does stuff over at uh, Zen West as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm super pumped. It's actually, and quick, quick note too. So the doors are officially seven, but we have a, a pre-show party at 5.30. Okay. So right across the street at Triple Crown uh, Tattoo Parlor, 
um, I wanted to set up a place where basically people who came to the show and got a ticket could get like two free drinks so and hang out. we were talking about that this morning. That was something that was really big in the 80s. And then it kind of just disappeared. Like mm. if you come to the show with this flyer, you get $2 off a drink. That just makes mm. sense. It's good for the bar. They get you to drink one drink. You're going to drink three or four drinks. Right. Throw right. them a bone, right? Right. Although in this case, we actually – we didn't go to Wrecker because I was honestly – um, I wanted to make sure that we could actually try to execute this strategy. Sure. And if we tried to go to like Wrecker itself and propose this, I was very afraid that we'd get shot down. So at least the first time, I wanted to make sure that we set up something separate, which is why we didn't do it like at yeah. Wrecker Theater uh, or at, at the Wrecker, as it's now called. So we actually had this whole like location scouting day where me and my buddy Connor, who's like my production manager mm -hmm. guy, um, him and I went out and just looked for a good spot to be able to do this. And literally the only place that was really right was mm. this tattoo parlor and i was really surprised um that they were even like open to it but we just we happened to like look at one of the posters that was um on the kind of on the street on a random window uh, as we were looking for places and it just said like there was this art exhibition that was happening and i was like huh like obviously they're open to events at this tattoo parlor let's try it and it's yeah. just this random staircase that like goes up and it was a really cool space and they were super down to do it. And they even gave it to us, honestly, like I expected it to be like, you know, probably $400 to rent it. And they actually gave it to us for free. So what are you giving your crazy. fans <laughs> to get the LJR tattoo? Oh, <laughs> yeah. there's got to be a prize for that. Right. That actually, that would be a great idea. The, the first thing is that apparently there are a lot, there's at least, I think there's some type of legal regulation around like drinking alcohol and okay. getting a tattoo. So if they, like if people <laughs> All are there. All my tattoos were. Right. I mean, obviously yeah. people do this, but you know, if people are there for our event and they know that we're drinking, you know, I think it's going to be harder for, they, they wouldn't allow that to, to happen, but they will be doing tattoos there. And part of what I want to do. Uh, to help out the tattoo parlor as a thank you is to make sure that we have some type of like, I don't know, 20% off or something, to, yeah. you know, a coupon to give everybody who walks through that door so that, because I've already had like five people be like, man, I really want to go get a tattoo. Like, this is perfect. I've been wanting to do that. Right. So if we could get them incentive to go back there and really say thanks to this group. I can see an LJR so awesome. tattoo. I've actually had a couple of my fans that have said that they wanted to get them, which I thought was very, like, it was crazy for me because I'd heard about this before. Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of them have actually got them, but I, I actually did used to give away temporary <laughs> tattoos back in the day. I think one of the reasons for not drinking alcohol while you're getting a tattoo is a little less thinning. about, like, law as much as it is health. Because yeah. when you're drinking, your blood's thin. Exactly. So the Blood's pouring out your pores, and you know, right? Well, that's why they can't I think keep that's why they made the law, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All but, right, so Rapola Entertainment, you brought up Zen West, has Awake at Last coming to everyone's favorite rock and roll roadside cantina on February 25th with Versus Me, Weather Vane, Made to Rise, Waters Deep, and Gabe Woodrow. And finally, be the first to message me the word microphone and win a $25 gift card to the Baltimore Decal Gal. So, I was doing a little bit of research on you and you're actually pretty good friends with a peer of mine, Brett Bueller. So how do you know oh, Brett? Yeah. And you've already done like <laughs> six shows with him, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Talk Brett's, to me about Brett. Brett's awesome. Um, we we met like ages ago. I don't even, I don't remember when we met because it was that long ago. Because our families grew up in the same neighborhood in Montpelier and we were on the same swim team. Um, he's got two brothers, just like I have two brothers. And there's a very kind of parallel um, age spacing just kind of shifted down where he's the oldest and he's my age. So I've got an older brother, two years older, and then a younger brother who's three years younger. Um, 
And so we just kind of grew up with their families. We did a lot of like Christmas stuff together. Um, we were oh, both cool. homeschooled. So we had a lot in common, minus the fact that like <laughs> I was really Christian and he very much was not. Like the parents were a little bit more so wanted to explore that, but we were very like happy-go-lucky you know, Christians. And I remember Brett and I have had this conversation multiple times now. It's pretty funny where he's like, I always hated you guys because you're always like so dang happy. Like, <laughs> you know, and like looking back, it's like, yeah, I can, I can totally see that because like, that'd be, that'd be very annoying if you're, you know, not feeling like life is, is that. And here's this other person just seems to genuinely be happy all the time. And like, you know, I was, I was hardcore evangelical growing up and definitely tried to like bring him to youth group and like, get him, you know, saved and Were all that stuff. Were you doing like but... mission trips and choirs? Yeah. I did the mission trips. Yeah, yeah. I was I was part of the youth band um, and I played for pretty much almost, I played every Sunday from the time that I was like 10 until 22 uh, at my church. And it'd be like, you know, three or four services at least. Oftentimes for a long time, especially in high school, we had like the three big services in the morning for like, you know, it's like three to 5,000 people that would come through at this mega church. And I'd play like the youth service if I wasn't playing that. Um, and then we'd have band practice in the afternoon for the youth service and then band practice for the evening service and then the evening service and then the after thing. So I'd be there from like 6.30 a.m., you know, till like 9 p.m. And honestly, like- Preaching I, to the choir. Yeah, I, like I loved yeah. it. It was my whole, you know, there's like, this is why I'm here. You know, I'd go early so I could try to like see the the cute girl that I was super crushing on that was the, you know, daughter of like the children's ministry, <laughs> right. you know, person, obviously, all that kind of stuff, you know. God, I don't even know how to like- Open that box. We won't get into that box yet. Yeah, we're, we can say that. We're yeah. getting into that box. We're definitely <laughs> getting into that box. What I love about Brett is Brett is just a really cool guy. He's, there's no agenda, no pettiness. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're both musicians on top of – we do the podcast for fun. It's like an extension of what we do, mm -hmm. but it's not really the root. And you're the type of person also who's doing a lot of different things. You are doing the music. You're doing videography. You're doing your engineering degree. Your master's from UM is getting you into the tech space. I mean, this is really cool. And I think it's because some people are only defined by one thing. So do you like – Mm. you know, going after all these different things, or do you feel a little bit torn with like what you should put your focus into? Mm. Yeah. Well, real quick, before I jump on that, I do want to give a, a shout out to Brett for, um, cause there's a lot of things that are, are so awesome about him and we've spent a lot of time, you know, we've had our, our challenges over the, the years and stuff, but ever since he invited me to be his drummer for his band a number of years ago, and we're not playing like together as much now. Yeah. Um, but it really created a, an op opportunity for us to get to know each other a lot more. And as I had kind of come out of the, the faith thing and gotten into a lot of the other types of stuff, we had a lot of overlap when it came to what we were reading. And we had a, some just really fantastic conversations that I honestly never thought I would have. And, you know, and I've told this to him before, but like, I never thought that him and I were going to be like really good friends. Uh, he's definitely like one of my close friends um, now. And I, you know, kind of never expected that. We have like, we have very kind of different skill sets. Um, and there's, there's some areas where like, I really have struggled to really put myself out there mm -hmm. that he's really pushed me to, to go into like, cause I used to perform live all the time, but it would always be like as a drummer and a singer or a keyboardist and a singer and never really like just a singer. Mm. So I felt a lot of imposter syndrome about that being kind of like the front man and everything. And I struggled a lot with the development of my voice and like endurance and stuff. Cause I never really practiced as much as I needed to. Sure. And he would just, but he had this way of just going and putting himself out there. 
Um, and since the beginning of when he really started trying to pursue the What's music. What's the worst stuff, case scenario? Bad show? Yeah. Get like, bad shows when you are ready. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he it didn't matter, you know, how he sounded. He just put himself out there. Yeah. And I, there's so much courage in that. And I really struggled to like, to do that same thing. Um, and there's a level to which like, there's a lot of legitimacy behind building a fan base online and all this other stuff where you do the tech stuff, you do the marketing stuff to set up your music career. Sure. Um, but there's also a level to which I think, you know, I, I've kind of compensated over the years for some of that fear. And Brett would help to really kind of push me past some of that to just get up there and go and do some of these performances. Uh, and that was hugely valuable. And I've, you know, will kind of always really appreciate that about yeah. him on top of the podcast stuff. And, yeah. you know, he's always, he, he is always working to try to grow and like find, you know, new ways to, you know, not only like think about things, but also, you know, like he's been building the part-time rock star, you know, productions yeah. and stuff. And uh, it's been cool to be able to, you know, help him out with some of that stuff since I'd done, you know, the video production stuff. Yeah, because you did a video for him. You did uh, yeah, the all, first, all the things I never wanted, whatever the name of the song is. It's Yeah, All I Never Wanted. Yeah. Uh, we did one for the, uh, the weekend, um, or one for Weekend, uh, his song, not the artist. Did you um, do Dispensary Kid? We did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun one, too. It's <laughs> a great song. So, yeah, dude, I love that song. I, I've really so loved Brett's songs. Like, he's... Write some really catchy stuff. It's kind of sublime, um, but a little bit more alternative, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, and like, you know, um, he records over at um, the Hangar Studio with uh, Felix, uh, okay. which if you haven't had him on the podcast, I think he'd be a great, you know, person as well. Felix Nieto. Um, okay. Really cool dude. Uh, him and I have known each other forever. He did all the audio production on my album, all the mixing and everything. So... I was going to ask you where you're getting the music recorded. It sounds extremely professional. So if it's if it's Felix, he's doing a great job and we'll definitely have to tag him in. Yeah, Felix would be great. Um, yeah, the recording for that album, uh, it's a couple of different things. Felix, you know, is the mastermind behind all the mixing. And like the number one thing on any audio production is always like the mix. I mean, obviously you got like your players, you got to make sure, but... You know, these days, like a lot of the mixing can compensate for that because there's a lot of like editing and stuff that happens. So right. obviously you don't want to do too much editing. You want to kind of minimize that as much as possible. But having a good mixing mixing engineer who can actually balance everything and make it sound the way that you want it to sound. Um, he does a great job blending vocals. Oh, yeah. I it's, mean, it's it sounds His vocal so chain good. production is just like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. So, so good. I thought so, you were going to say that. Like the mix is important, but the vocals are really, really, really important. Yeah. Totally. Depending on where, on what song it is, like some of them are a little bit different. Like we were, we recorded the drums up at Rightway Studios in Baltimore with Felix as the mixing engineer for that. Um, and then uh, the guitars and bass and vocals, um, most of that was done um, actually with my brother, uh, Daniel John Roberts, who would also be a great fit, you know, for this. Uh, he's awesome. Um, DJR. DJR. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. D Jr. <laughs> He loves that. <laughs> totally. He's so mad right now. He's I like, know, I right? need to go it's on like, that oh, show and set the record just, straight. That's right. That's right. Uh, but yeah, so he would be great. But he he did all of the uh, guitar and bass production for it, or all the, the tracking uh, for that, because he's a fantastic, like one of the, probably the best guitarist. And I would say, honestly, one of the best bassists that I know, you know, around here awesome. as well. Um, and then we did uh, the vocal stuff there. And then Felix just brought it all together. And, uh, and mixed it down and just made it sound awesome. And then we had a, I think it was a guy from Nashville named James who did the, the mastering for it. All right. So typically we would get into the fun questions, mm -hmm. but because we're going to get into a rather heavy subject, <laughs> I'm going to save the fun questions for the end. 
No, well, until we get through this. Okay. Because we're get we gotta get into your background. We gotta get into the videography. Yeah. But we're gonna get into the ex-evangelical videos and really the impetus for me reaching out to you in the first place. So talk to me about your religious upbringing. Oh man. Did you want me to quickly touch on that last question that you had asked that I, I didn't get to about like the kind of balancing of all the different things? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, let's you- get that first. But if you're a musician, a videographer, the app, you can't possibly throw yourself into all of it. So how do you yeah. deal with that? It's like macro ADD. Yeah, totally. I really like it, honestly. And at first, a lot of people told me that I was doing like way too much. And I was doing a lot too much at the beginning. And I had to kind of um, throw away a number of things that I wanted to kind of do. And eventually, like really, uh, like kind of slim up my options down to just a couple of things mm-hmm. and then figure out how do I actually make these things be feasible? Um, because I, I really definitely loved multiple things. Like um, as I, and I'll, I will get more into this later, but as I, as I left the PhD program at Maryland, I needed to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And um, there was this quote that was really powerful. Uh, there was basically, you know, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who've come alive. And so, of course, the question for me was, well, what the hell makes me come alive? And I was creating art, empowering people, and building meaningful relationships. Yeah. So whatever I did in my life, I wanted to fit into those those things. And so the, what I do now, the videography um, kind of funds everything, mm. um, has also turned into something that I just, I love doing. You so, got a great eye for it, man. Thank you. Thank those you. videos, the, the first three in the, I guess, the 12-part the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're awesome. Thank you. Thank I watched you. them all, but go ahead. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so um, I've fallen in love with like film. Um, and of course, music has always been like this primary, you know, art form for me. And I've, I've loved that. Um, but then like in order to, uh, and obviously I went to school, you know, as an, as an engineer as well. Mm. So there's a lot of like this technical kind of stuff that's up there, you know, sitting kind of waiting to be utilized in some way. And that really lent itself well to the marketing side of things where you have to learn how to use different marketing software mm. and all these things. And like, mm. you know, I went to grad school for my PhD at Maryland, I ended up quitting with my master's after four years, realized that I, you know, didn't want to do that. So um, I just got my master's instead, but I'd done most of the work already for the PhD, just kind of had like one, you know, one year left. Mm. I just totally lost my train of thought there. It happens. Yeah. But we're just talking about balancing all the interests. And tell me if you don't find this to be the case. You ever notice like when you go on vacation, uh, the next year you want to kind of go to the same place because you had a great time, Mm. but then it turns into a routine and you don't realize you're not having fun anymore because it's the same thing over and over and over. It's the new experience that was the fun thing. So what I found is the new things, like when you started doing videography instead of, or focusing on that instead of music, that was probably really exciting because it's like, oh man, can I do this for real? Oh yeah. You know? Totally. I mean, anytime that I learn something new, I get this rush of feeling of this, like, oh, I've got this new thing that now I'm kind of competent at that I've learned this thing. And I've definitely become kind of addicted to that. And it can be, it can be a great thing because it means that I can learn how to do new things pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what I was going to say about the PhD thing is like, like I'm used to feeling stupid, which is how you feel in grad school most sure. of the time. Right. As you're Obviously you're not stupid out. if you're in grad school though. Right. Exactly. But the way that you feel, and again, the imposter syndrome is like, oh my God, like I don't deserve to be here. Am I, I shouldn't this? be given yeah. a PhD, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's, that's very real. So, um, but like, um, the, so I was used to feeling, you know, dumps so that allowed me to kind of push through mm-hmm. and learn all these different new things. And now like I can do that pretty quickly. And that's like a huge asset mm. when it comes to some new marketing tool or some new program or quickly figuring out how all these new, how do these pieces fit together and to create like a holistic sort of plan. And then 
being able to look at the the overarching thing of what this all is, how this is all supposed to connect, but also get really, really granular in the technical aspects of one thing and not get too overwhelmed. Right. And, you know, essentially learn like a rapid task switching over and over and over again between lots of different things, um, which has enabled me to, to manage and slowly grow the video production business to grow my fan base, um, to make my own, you know, content and also to grow uh, fund up. Uh, to try to get that off the ground. That's a whole other thing we can talk about. The beautiful thing that I found is that all these like interlock, like three core pieces. Mm. Um, so it allows me to kind of have, uh, and they they all like really work together to support each other and create solutions where like, for example, I don't know how this is going to turn out exactly, but I'm pretty hopeful. Um, one, of, one of my uh, teammates for the music stuff, mm. um, uh, I have a small team and, and she was recommended. Her name's uh, Emily. She's going to be doing like the bartending and stuff for the the show. And she was like, you know, because I had this idea of trying to get into like Greek life at a at a college, because if we can get them on board with making this a big party, this would be epic. How do we create that groundswell movement? Basically, if we can get enough of these people that are coming, you know, to a show, um, then we could make that like the party of, um, you know, the, the college, basically. And so I was thinking we could somehow reach out and everything. And she's like, well, you know. People who are part of Greek life are actually like, they have philanthropic efforts. They very specifically support different like nonprofits and it's part of their community thing. And here is my- Fund up is blossoming. Fund up is this thing that I've created to support nonprofits that gives people the ability to fundraise for whatever nonprofit they care about. So, and multiply that giving over time. So now it was a very easy thing to just put together and say, oh, well, we make the concert a fundraiser. We reach out to Greek life to make this be one of their fundraiser events. Now they promote it to all of campus. Their job is to come here. And oh, by the way, we have two free drinks for everybody who's over 21. So you basically have to party with a purpose and raise money and fulfill your obligations. And we get this whole like ideally army of people on a college campus that are promoting this to other people, you know, to their to their friends. I may have some connections for you. And I feel like this is turning into an infomercial where we keep saying that we're going to like... Give them the juicy piece of information, like the the topic that you're here for, and we right, keep right. pushing it back. But I want to now stick with the Fund Up app because you're you're bringing up so much about that. Mm. Uh, so is this kind of like a square in, in, but it's like in line with the five hundred one three C rules? Is explain what Fund Up is? Yeah. So so Fund Up is a fundraising platform that anybody can use. So an, an individual or a business or influencer, right? Um, to basically give a small amount per month, like five bucks. And then by using a unique referral link, uh, they send it out to their friends and family or, or fans or, you know, clients or whatever, mm. encouraging them to give. And you basically, and since they're signing up with your referral link, they're giving because of you. So now we can show you in the app that because of you, $5 plus, whatever everybody that's kind of underneath you in this little tree that you're building, mm. you know, is giving. So you might be giving $5 a month, but you're the reason that 50 to $100 a month is going. Now, do they get a statement at the end of the year or something like that? Yeah. So so we have – so there's two aspects to fund up. Um, we have like the for-profit entity that actually does the app development, mm. um, and that's contracted by our private foundation that actually receives the donations from people. And because that fund up foundation – Are they doing the merchant services? So we do that. So Stripe, we use Stripe for all the okay, okay. services. Yeah. So same as like, you know, Uber, Lyft, Indiegogo, gotcha. all them. And that allows us to automate a lot of these payouts, which is hugely powerful. Yeah. Um, so, but our Fund Up Foundation is the actual like legal entity that accepts the donations and it's a 501c3. So that way we can make everything be a tax write-off and then we just automatically send the tax receipts at the end of the year 
to everybody who's given. Perfect. And the idea is that everybody's kind of creating their own little trees, um, including the people that you refer. So part of what we're planning on doing in the next you know, couple months is reaching out to different influencers on TikTok that create content within the niche of a particular um, nonprofit. And we can say, you know, hey, like for example, we've got one that's like the anti-racist education alliance group, right? Mm -hmm. And so obviously their their goal is to help, you know, promote education in this space, you know, around those those issues. Yeah. And there's a lot of people on TikTok that create content specifically about that. That's their whole brand. So if we reach out to them and ask them to do a fundraiser, they're very likely to to do that. Yeah. Um, and part of the beauty is that we also have like a nice little ranking system. So you can see like for a nonprofit, what number, how do you rank in terms of fundraising, how, in terms of how much you've raised. So um, you can actually compete, like we can set up a competition with like 10 different influencers to see, you know, who can raise the most money for this nonprofit. It's great. All doing it for free. And eventually part of what we want to do is also make this like part of the actual like show promotion stuff. Like we want to be able to reach out to a nonprofit in that area, reach out to influencers who are all supporting that nonprofit in that area yeah. and promote, you know, that particular Do show. Do you have a network together. of influencers? Because influencer marketing is extremely expensive. So this is where um, I'm still working to build that. There yeah. are ways to effectively utilize um, smaller influencers, micro influencers for like 30 bucks sure. a video, that kind of thing. Or just and, networking within your own counties. Right, exactly. Um, so, and there are sites that like will connect you with micro influencers if there's people that you don't know as well. Like my uh -huh. wife is on the DSS board for Harford County. Mm. I mean, she's probably got uh, connections to a lot of nonprofits. Yeah, that's so awesome. After this podcast, we could talk. I'm just saying that grassroots may be a, another way. Totally. I mean, yeah. and we're trying to. We've we've only been doing. I've only been kind of thinking up these other ideas because. Um, some of the grassroots stuff, it just takes more time. It takes kind of meeting the right people. And all of a sudden, when, when once you get that one person where everything really works well and you have great testimonials, mm -hmm. then it kind of like explodes. Um, but we haven't gotten that one person just yet. So we've got about eight nonprofits on the app, but all the nonprofits kind of struggled to actually execute on fundraising. I think largely based on the feedback I got was because of the how um, they didn't they didn't have an easy way to like explain how it worked, yeah. and so part of that was our messaging. So we revamped our messaging, revamped the website. Everything's now a lot clearer. So when people you know sign up, now it makes a lot more sense. And those are a lot of the things that you just you know go into. Yeah, man. So is the idea then to build this thing up, get it to a level of success, and then offload it to sell it to like maybe a bigger tech company? So I've I've thought about that, and and something maybe that maybe has more funding. Just yeah, naturally. yeah. Like I mean, angel investors and that kind of thing. Right. I've thought. I've definitely thought about it. It probably depends on like where I am at that point. Yeah. Um, the way that it's been, the way that I've been building it is very intentionally, uh, such, such that it can scale without like a lot of effort. Mm. Um, so like right now, it's me and my dad that are doing like all the development, marketing, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we don't have any investors. It's all kind of our time and effort and you know some money that we've been able to invest into that. Which has been great. This could be your golden ticket, man. Well, that's the thing. So all we need is like, you know, one one random celebrity. Um, like let's say The Rock tweeted out like, hey guys, give it to my fund up. You know, well, then it's just going to It's all over, right? Yeah. I mean, it's $10,000 a month that The Rock can take credit for or probably more, honestly, that he's donating. Or that's the reason that, you know, because of him, he's only giving $5 a month, but because of him, 10000 after that, you know, every bunch of other celebrities, you know, will jump on board because they get to take credit so you're for really this amount of- the edge of breaking that glass ceiling. Yeah, we're like we're like really co close to that, which That's is awesome. really exciting. And it the beautiful thing is that it really like it works well with all of the other pieces of everything. 
um, even when it comes down to like a nonprofit that wants to create an account and wants to have a video on their profile and they mm. don't have a video, well, I've got a video production company. Right, so I can give you, and because this is my app, like of course I'll give you like One a discount, shop. you know. So it works out really well, and then FundUp allows us to turn any event into a fundraiser. And you're coming from DC today, so there's so much down there that you can really tie into. Totally, totally. Uh, DC is super annoying when it comes to like all the registration. They've taken like eight months to even get us registered yeah. as a as a so that we can accept donations because you have to register in every state that you accept donations from. Are there are there tech grants that you could apply for? Because what I found in the grant world is they're trying to give the money away and people aren't taking it. Mm. So there may be tech grants that you could actually, you know, this is what we're trying to do and, and apply. You might get funding ten, fifteen thousand dollars you didn't expect to have. Yeah. So that's something that I'm super open to. I would love to check out. I've I've looked at some different grants in the past um, for tech companies or small businesses. Um, I applied for some. This is also back, I think this was back before we were fund up, we had this company called My Phone Feeds Kids, which is like really just focused in yeah. on, um, you know, feeding kids and That's this awesome. t-shirt. And yeah, it was, it's it was like cool, Meals but, on Wheels, but an app. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was a lot more complicated too. You had like, you, we would sell t-shirts through the app. People would buy the t-shirt, wear it. It said, My Phone Feeds Kids does yours. It would get people to ask you about it. And you basically try to sell somebody the t-shirt with your referral code. Yeah. And that way, we'd since we donate a percentage of T-shirts, you'd also build out a similar tree. It was all one time, and like it didn't really catch on. It was one cause, and it wasn't really, you know, what it needed to be. And now it can kind of anybody can utilize the same system. It's also sustainable. You don't have to wear a T-shirt. Introverts don't like wearing T-shirts that have rain, and people will be like, "So how does your phone feed kids?" You know, <laughs> so <laughs> right. But yeah, so that's that's part of the plan is eventually to use that not only to do what it is that we're doing now, but to also use FundUp to create festivals. Because when you run a not when you run a festival um, as a nonprofit, you're actually allowed to get a liquor license. So for the day, and so now, and this this all came from an event that I did in last June where we lost a ton of money. We probably lost six thousand dollars because of how much money we had spent on promotion and trying a lot of different things. I learned a ton. And one of the things I looked at was like how much money actually flowed in the night and between like parking and and like drinks and like the tickets and all that stuff, there were like 137 people. It was probably about $10,000 that flowed in this night and we lost 6,000. And mm. between all the bands, there were three bands. We only got paid like $1,400, 400 of that went to the photographer, you know? And so like we made out with maybe like 300 bucks and that's, you know, once we had, and against the 6,000, now we're at 5,700. So what I realized was like, where is all this money going and how do we get that money this next yeah. time so we can actually do that? And so that's where I realized if we create um, this event, like a festival and have eight to 10 bands come and we have it as a fund up fundraiser. Yeah, just right? scan the QR code and you're you're in. Boom, you're in. And we can obviously all the you know fans will come, but also like now we can make money off alcohol sales. Ah. And that is a lot of money. Like yeah, it is. if you have 500 people come in and you make you know $10 on a drink because- like wholesale, you're paying $1 for a drink, but you sell them for 10. So 500 people, you know, times, um, you know, $9 is like $4,500. Right. Holy, holy shit. Right. Yeah. And like, that's, that's only 500 people. <clears throat> if you can get a festival that's, you know, working well, that gets a thousand people, now you're at like $9,000. Yeah. Like, and so now we, if that works and all this stuff that we've been doing to try to create content and, you know, push, you know, to get more ticket sales and the free drinks and all that stuff, if we kind of find a combination of this stuff that gets a ton of people out. Now we don't have to have bands selling tickets anymore. Oh, we man, can they have will like, love that. We they can just pay it. them like $500, maybe even $1,000 per band. 
Like that would Imagine be amazing. That. Yeah. And there's, so there's, there's actually um, a group called Maryland Music City Association. Uh, they're doing something similar to this um, up in a, like a well, sunrise production. So just some, something similar yeah. to this with their nonprofit. And it's awesome. Um, but this is something that like everybody should be able to do, you know, yeah. to be able to create something awesome. And since we're creating this, this structure and I've got a team, part of what we're hoping to do is to solve this promotional problem and then create, uh, use that to create an engine that can be used for, you know, essentially any band. So which, because we needed this to be separate for any city. So we want to go to Philly and this, have this work. Right. And again, all those college students anywhere, we find, you know, the right connection at that college, boom, we can get this whole army of people that are all working to promote this event. We could do that for this festival. Right. And so there's a lot of ways that this could all come together. And then we can start to replicate this for, you know, other groups, uh, as opposed to just doing it for like, you know, my music. I think it's brilliant. And I was just going to say, I didn't mean to kind of get in there while you were finishing your thought. Oh, you're good. <laughs> but this would open you up to piggyback on the grants to the Maryland State Arts Council, because now you're bringing entertainment uh, totally. to the community. So so I've actually gotten a couple of, of grants uh, from them for the creativity grant the last two years. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, it was hugely encouraging. And part of me is kind of pissed that I moved uh, from Maryland to DC because they just released a new grant uh, that's open to any and all artists. It's a $6,000 grant. It's for like living expenses and like to create your own art. Do you so, know how many artists did not take advantage of their COVID, like the, the lost oh money's grant? Yeah. Like I had, well, one of the women that I deal with, she was reaching out to me. She's like, Brad, do you know any artists that suffered lost due to COVID? I'm like, I do. She's like, send them my way. And I would send them the information and they just didn't do anything with oh my it God. because they don't think it's accessible to I them. Know. But it's like, it's I, so accessible. Dude, it hurts so bad. I yeah. dated this girl. Um, she's awesome. Um, she's crushing it with so many different things. Fantastic voice. She was actually on one of the, the covers that we did. Um, and one of the things that she really struggled with was like believing that she was like worth real money. So even though like I was telling her like, hey, there's all this pandemic is unemployment yes. assistance for independent contractors like you. We're talking like, it was like $600 a week on top of like the 200 or whatever. And she hadn't gotten any of it. And I basically, I had to really like push and push and like basically force her to actually do all this. And by the end, she got $14,000, which right. all, all in a bulk, like lump sum payment, which allowed her to actually get the van so that she could do the, the van life. It was, what was funny too, is like we, she totally broke up with me before the money came in. And then like later, like that was when all the money came in. Which I just thought was funny, um, but I was like, "All right, well, I'm, I'm glad glad that I could help." So let me tell you a story, uh, and this is to anybody listening who doesn't think they can get a grant. My sister lives up in New York City, and she filed for a grant for Banana for Scale. So it was basically an artistic grant. I don't know who it was through, but it was through New York City, and basically she created a gigantic banana. You, you ever see like the memes where people like be like an old like antique TV and they 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 tape a banana onto it and they call it banana for scale. So you know what size mm. the TV is based mm -hmm. on banana for scale because we okay. all know the size of a banana. Right, right. So in New York City, she created a gigantic banana. But the point is, she was able to apply with this vision to get a giant banana in New York. And so if you don't think you can get a grant, you can definitely get a grant. <laughs> totally. You want to guess how much grant money I got over COVID? I would love to know. Do you, do you want to guess? guess. Okay, I'm going to say if it was over COVID. And, and it's also with like the creativity grant I've gotten the past two years and everything too. Um, obviously, there's the six. So we'll, we'll just 20000 uh, More than that. Just go ahead and tell uh, me. $38,000. That's insane. Yeah, right? Between Because the, here's the other thing. So this is part of why it's so important to have your music be an actual business entity. Right. 
where you're also like paying yourself and doing everything kind of like by the book. So I was able to get both of the paycheck protection grants, um, which is, you know, free money from the, the government during COVID, um, because I was able to show that I was paying myself on payroll, mm-hmm. you know, as a company and that the numbers decreased when COVID came around. And I also had been existing for like a year and a half or two years, which is re- what was required, you know, for to be eligible for those grants. Um, and that's that's on top of the other emergency funding that was there. Like, for example, Maryland state government had a $10,000 grant for businesses that are small businesses. Mm. So I was able to get that as well. Um, there's also like county artist emergency mm. grant funding um, for like $3,500. There's um, a $1,000 grant um, from, I think, the city you know, arts council as well. Um, and then on top of that was like the creativity grants that I've you know gotten as well you know over the past couple of years. So, and this is just like this is a small amount of the grant money that's out there. It's not even like a large amount. Right. Um, it's uh, funny that you bring this up because um, as I was getting grants successfully over the past couple of years, I realized like other people need this, and nobody even knows that grants exist. So, um, and uh, ChatGPT came around. Um, and I realized like I could use this to really streamline the creation of a product that would help people a lot. You know ChatGPT, right? I do not. Oh my God. So this will blow your mind. ChatGPT is an AI that you can ask questions and you can ask it whatever. You can ask it like, why is Jimi Hendrix the best guitarist? And it will answer and give you like an accurate answer. It's very, very weird. Like very, very strange. Um, But the beautiful thing is that if you just ask it the right question, you can aggregate information. It all depends on like your goal, right? It's like I can... And some of it's like more accurate than others. Most of it's pretty accurate. Like you can say like, hey, I want to respond to this email, you know, create an email that's a response to this. And you send like the text that the email that was sent to you. And you can say like, I want it to be in like a nice, happy tone. And it'll create that for you with proper grammar and everything. You can even use it to create programming, like Google Chrome extensions. Weird, crazy stuff. So there's so few limits on Mm. this. And it was actually so powerful that just recently uh, Microsoft acquired um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they acquired OpenAI's ChatGPT um, for one billion dollars. Oh my god! Which is going to finally bring, most likely, because of how massive ChatGPT is right now, it's going to bring um, Bing, their search engine, into competition with Google. Are we <laughs> playing of, with fire with AI? Oh my morning. god, that's a whole other conversation. But I know to- totally. I, I, I mean, there's there's so many good things and and questionable things and and challenges with it. Yeah. But the way that I used it um, was essentially to because I had been wanting to create an, an aggregate like spreadsheet of all the grants that would be easy for artists to find. And I know that every state had an arts council. So I just you know, like Googled and found the state arts council, linked it up in a spreadsheet. And I was mm. going to sell this thing for like you know 27 bucks online, like a lot of those like quick PDFs and stuff, sure. uh, just to give people access, along with some tutorials that show them like, here's like what to do. Here's my example of my grant that got funded. Here's what grants are, what you can expect from them, all that kind of stuff, mm. tips and tricks. And so I have a lot of friends who've done really well in the course space online. I've got some other courses too that I'm 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 releasing. But um, this one, I realized when ChatGPT came around, maybe I could ask it to create a list of all the arts councils in a state because you've got like you know county based arts councils and you've got other random ones and other grants and stuff like that, um, like city ones. And so I asked it, you know, give me a list of all the arts councils in Maryland, and it did it. Mm. 
Yeah. So I was like, holy shit. Because yeah. this was something that I was not prepared to do on my own was Google right. and try to aggregate them all. Yeah. Weeks, maybe even months to try yeah. to get all this information together. And instead, within two hours, I had a huge spreadsheet of, and, and I asked it to create a table for me too. So like, you know, headers for, you know, name, uh, city, state, and county. And it just created this table for me. So I could literally copy and paste it into an Excel. That is fascinating. Yeah. And then like I could link all that up because there's some shortcuts in, in Google Sheets to be able to link, you know, things to Google searches. And so now I have this list of like, it's like 1300 um, arts councils or, or different grants you can get. It's probably a lot more than that because each arts council usually has a couple different grants you can apply for. And I just aggregated a bunch of different ones that I found online as well. Like regional grants you can apply for, national grants, all this kind of stuff for artists. And I put it all into this huge spreadsheet. And now it's like 1,300 grants or more that people can apply for. And sorted by state, they can easily find their own stuff and everything. So I'm just I'm actually launching that right now. Uh, it's called the Music Grant Bible. And it's also only $27. So it's not officially available yet. Like I haven't officially like launched it in that sense, but literally like this next week or two, I'm going to put, be putting that out there because people need this information. They do. It's it's awesome. This is fascinating. So the app itself, going back to that, is mm-hmm. in, to fund up. It's a, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a philanthropic extension of, I guess, in a sense, your faith. Right. <laughs> so See, only, only, you, only you would be able to pick that up. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to get back to that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're, we're, Let's do we're it. there. Talk to me about your upbringing. Talk to me about your introduction to Christianity. I believe it was. Yeah. And was it a healthy introduction for you? So this is one of the like the weird things is that I was brought up in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were like super committed. They dedicated their whole lives to following the gospel and to you know loving God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. And raising us, you know, in that faith as well. My dad had actually quit his job as like a really high paid tech developer. Um, he had developed some of the stock exchange, NASDAQ stock exchange code, mm, um, wow. other stuff like that. He was getting paid like big money um, in order to A, have more time with us, but B, like follow this call that he felt was coming from God to be part of the church um, in a more significant way. So he became like the worship pastor and the IT director, uh, for this, for Grace Community Church, which is an evangelical church we went to. And that church had started off at like 500 people scaled to, you know, three to 5,000 people. Uh, we had built, we'd built this huge new campus essentially in Fulton, Maryland with, you know, the millions of dollars that had come in, you know, through the, the giving. Um, and they had like a whole separate, you know, building for the youth and everything, which is where all the youth services were. And when, when I was first introduced to it as a really young kid, you know, I thought, well, this is this, you know, great thing and really beautiful thing. And I had a lot of fun memories of, you know, playing sports with some of the other people in the youth group. And um, then eventually once I got to middle school, um, that's when things really started to get a lot more serious because there was like, there was a way to be like a real Christian who was really serious about following God. Mm-hmm. And I really like bought into that hard. And my older brother did too. So he kind of like, you know, kind of led the way in that. Um, it can be asphyxiating if you don't. Totally. Especially if that's like your main community. And I was homeschooled. So, you know, technically private schooled, but that's, we, we would go to like classes once a week, uh, starting in seventh grade, there were group classes. And this is with a really small school, like 250 people in the entire, you know, group. I really didn't have a lot of like outside social interaction outside of my family. Um, and then like some community stuff, like locally, like there was a swim team I was a part of, made a couple of friends there. Um, but most of my experience with friends was totally inside these, this youth group. And, you know, I had been 
this can get like really, really complex, really, really fast. But um, I loved it so, so much because it it allowed me to, I was really good at a lot of things and I very quickly got a lot of praise from the contributions that I mm. made. And I'd already been playing in the main service at the main church since I was 10. So, you know, two years before I even, you know, came into uh, like middle school, one or two years before. So I was getting all this like adulation and praise for being part of this. So of course my natural next step was to become all that I could be in this journey that, you know, God was leading me on. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I accepted the gospel um, probably when I was about, I don't know, five or six, because I wanted to take communion yeah. and then later accepted it for, for quote, for real, you know, right. uh, at one of those retreats. Around like 12 or 13. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, at a middle school retreat. And then again, the next year, because I never really knew, you know, kind of thing. Right quote unquote. Um, and, but I was, I was dedicating my whole life to trying to bring people to Christ to experience what this was, what this life, what real life meant. Cause this is the whole narrative I was taught growing up, um, was, you know, you believe in, in the gospel and that saves you from your sins, help you then, uh, and from, from hell, you're going to go to heaven when you die. And everything in life revolves around this idea that you are part of like saving, you know, the world, um, from eternal damnation. So, and that's like all of, if you really believe that narrative, everything is wrapped up in that. There's no choice that doesn't have any relevance in that. You're either choosing God or you're choosing something, you're choosing yourself. Right. It's you know, very binary. Very, very binary. Um, but I wholeheartedly believed this. So, um, well, it's, it's not just the religion though. You're, it's being reinforced as a social group and network and you want to be, you know, you're being influenced by that and totally. those people. And your so. family too. Sure. Uh, but I, like at that age, at that age, you can't tell the difference. Yeah. You know, everything working together in this incredible way seems like God, and mm -hmm. you're looking for proof of God, so you want to believe that all these things are. So you know, and I just went hardcore into it. So all the band practices, like the Sunday was just one of the <clears> days of the week. Almost every day of the week was, you know, uh, would would end with either like a Bible study, a prayer night, um, a worship night, or like an outreach night. Um, and so like my whole life was all wrapped up in that. And for a long time, I really believed that this is what makes like, you know, God real. Um, and eventually realized like as the emotional impact of like being the drummer on the worship services and really slamming those things and, um, you know, singing on stage and stuff like that, as all that started to kind of fall away, I realized like, well, this, this is I, I, what I thought made God real, which is more this experiential aspect. Obviously, that must have just like been emotion. Right. So like, but that doesn't mean that God's not real, you know, because this stuff happens and God can feel distant from you. They talk about that a lot. Um, I honestly associate a lot of that with my addiction to pornography and mm. was like, you know, this is definitely, this has got to be why, because you know, I'm sinning. So God's making himself distant from me. And that's why I don't feel connected to God. So I have to stop doing that. So there's a lot of like, self-shaming that I would do around that. I did that for, I don't even know how many years. Sure. Um, we'd even, even like in the, in the Bible studies, we'd literally like try to hold each other accountable. How old are you? Right now? 32. Yeah. So you really grew up when porn was extremely accessible. Oh, it yeah. wasn't like yeah. one magazine hiding in the woods that you, like everybody ran down to try to find and look at. Yeah, exactly. You just could pull it up on your phone. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this, I didn't have a phone at that time. So I was like sneaking into like the study and trying to watch, you know, Something on the on the, right, right. the computer, the family computer, you know. Like I don't know how I was this brave. Like I, I can't believe that I actually I was. I must have been that desperate. Not brave is probably the wrong word. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, with, at the at the Bible studies, we would try to hold each other accountable, and that literally meant like going around the room 
and saying like how many times you had masturbated that week. Oh my God. Um, yeah. That's invasive. Yeah. It's super invasive. Um, but we literally saw it as like this glorification of God. Like how can we rid ourselves of every sinful thought, every impure thought so that we can you yeah. know, live for the righteous, for, for God and try to make our lives reflect wow. that as much as possible and be as pure as possible. So was this the type of church where you were burning records as well? We never went that far. Um, I've got some other friends on TikTok where that was like a thing. Yeah. Um, and they, sometimes they'd bring all those records in, like the, the pastors Ozzy just Oswald. drive over them. Not that you can't just buy it again. Yeah, exactly. So, but I mean, and so in, in a lot of ways, um, there was this incredible, uh, so I, obviously everything I'm saying now, like it, it, there's so much awful things that happened. And a lot of that, it took me years to work through. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, religious trauma syndrome is totally, you know, a real thing. I didn't I, even know that was a thing because yeah. I have it too. Yeah. And so I've been trying to reconcile those years with who I've become, <laughs> with who my parents expected me to become. And it's been very difficult. I actually still yeah. am mad at religion and God. So I kind of mm. go to church with my wife every once in a while. I'm just Wait, kinda, so you still go, how do you go to church though? I should probably say I occasionally am, am taken to church. Okay. So okay. it's a gotcha, different gotcha. church entirely. And basically what... I think you have to do is you have to deconstruct all of it and then put it back together in a way yeah. that makes sense because that none of it made sense. Yeah. Hindsight 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Although it, it makes sense in the moment experientially, but doesn't actually fit together in the way that they're saying, because there's other things that are there that are real, but you're so young, you're vulnerable and you don't, you're not aware of that stuff. And this is where like, I look at it now as like spiritual abuse Really, so even that was though, like the, word, the, the okay. intentional, the intention is to like give you the best thing possible, right? It, and that's where like abuse is a weird word to use because abuse kind of implies intention, and right. that's not really there with most of these people. They're mostly just kind of like reacting to something that they believe is true, but they're not really seeing the bigger picture, and they really believe that they're doing something good, which is part of why it works, and part of why it's so damaging, and part of why it's hard to hold them accountable and actually justify your own sense of anger with what they did, you know, to you. I didn't know you well enough to to use that word, so mm. I'm sitting there. Uh, when I'm coming up with the questions and I, I put expectations and forcing religion as almost cruel or unrealistic, what, the word I wanted was abuse. I don't want to say that because I, I didn't know if that's how you felt about it entirely. And then I put the road to hell is paved with good intentions. intentions. Yeah. yeah. The, there are people that intentionally use um, religion in order to, Control. and they're aware of how they're using it. Yeah. And there's ways in which that's, it's very abusive and bad. I think that there are tons of people who really believe that they're doing something good and beautiful and helping other people. And they're, what they're actually doing is contributing to a narrative that keeps people caged and essentially like allows for the temporary satiation of the meeting of unmet emotional needs from unresolved childhood trauma, typically from uh, emotional neglect where a child was not given, the, where their needs were not met by the parent uh, and they were never able to learn how to meet their own needs. And so church and religion allows for people to meet these needs temporarily on a week-by-week -week basis where they feel like they experienced themselves being whole again, and then ascribes that to the character of God. And kind of from there allows for the sort of changing or molding of one's life into to, to close, more closely reflect the set of community values that that particular group um, adheres to. Yeah. Um, 
And what that does is because of the power that's there, it sets the stage for abuse, even if it's really unintentional, because people are really trying to do something good. And part of what's really important when you're being hurt or being abused is that you're aware that this is painful and you need to be able to have like, like something to point at and to be angry at, to be upset at. And it shouldn't, it's made really hard to justify like that anger when these people are not trying to do something that's going to hurt you. They, you, you can really tell well, this person really doesn't want to hurt me. They really want the best for me. And so you right. either have to like um, demonize this person uh, and make them into the enemy um, or like accept that they are, you know, um, just so kind of like um, small minded. And it's really hard to, to kind of choose one of those, especially when uh, you're told to, you know, be slow to become angry, you know, and in your anger, do not sin and all this right. stuff. And so anger in a lot of ways is, is demonized. So even to be able to get access to what you would need to establish boundaries mm. is really, really difficult. Um, and so in that way, there's a lot of ways and, and, and there's other ways in which, um, you know, many religious groups really kind of moralize a sense of codependency. Uh, and this shows up in the idea of self-sacrifice and giving up yourself for other people where there's no real limits to this, again, because people are tend to be fairly boundaryless in that mm. world um, because of the emotional neglect and that plays in. Um, and so people end up learning that like, I'm going to get my needs met by meeting all of your needs. You're taught this idea of, you know, God is going to fill you up and then you are going to fill up the people around you. And that's how that works. And they literally use this, you know, let's, pour, let's take this pitcher of water, pour it into you, then you pour it into other people. And then, you know, God pours back into you, you pour it into other people. That cycle continues. And what they never showed, of course, which because this did not really happen, was other people pouring back into you, especially when you're more like on the leadership realm of this stuff. So it's literally just that analogy and nobody else's cup was pouring back into you to help. And so eventually when everything falls apart, it's like you're getting no source at all. And everybody kind of looks at you as this person who's got everything together as an example. So it really messes things up. And to make it even worse, we've, we're taught ideas about God meeting our needs in ways that we're supposed to be dependent on God to you know, meet X, Y, Z, all this stuff, and go to God in prayer for all this really difficult stuff, as opposed to figuring out how to resolve these things and create a sense of internal power. Mm. And so what I've, where I've come to now is that essentially what we're doing when we are, um, ex what, what, what we're doing when we're uh, deciding that we're, we get this benefit from God is we're essentially externalizing this sense of self into like an, an entire other being that's able to meet these needs for us, which in a weird way is actually like us meeting our own needs, but we're only able to do it if we believe in that God. And so when all that falls away, what do you have left? You don't have any, you've been told not to, to, to trust in yourself, you know, trust in God, don't lean on your own understanding. So you have no self-trust. You can't believe that uh, you can meet your own needs and you're just kind of left hanging. Mm -hmm. And then the church essentially doesn't know what to do with you and will either throw you out or try to like manipulate you back in, but not out of a real sense of love. It's more out of a sense of like self-preservation, needing to believe their own things. Um, and for me, you know, what happened to me, I just basically got kind of forgotten. Um, maybe not forgotten. I think apparently people still watch my TikToks. They've been making their way around Grace, which has been funny. Um, but um, nobody really reached out or cared when I left. My reaction to the whole thing was I ran away to Hollywood. 
Mm. And I, just, I just basically two middle fingers up in the air at the whole thing. See, that is awesome. Yeah, so love that. <laughs> I ended up coming back and writing an album called Join the Cult. What? You wrote a book called Join the Cult? No, no, it's an album called Join the Cult. Oh, there nice. is a, there is a book called Children of the Program, which talks about <laughs> that. Uh, well, That's awesome. It, it gets into a lot of that stuff. Uh, the, the end game is basically uh, spiritual enlightenment coming from a chip instead of a, mm. a, a godly place. But mm-hmm. anyway, so it's it's definitely like worked its way through all of my, my music and art. But the idea was when I went to Hollywood, I realized, well, this is just another cult. Everybody here is trying to be a rock star or a model or uh, actor, actress, <laughs> totally. that kind of thing. And <laughs> they're just as not real as the people I just left. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> it was just a, it was just a, anyway, the, the album came out and kind of going full circle. I told you it was kind of a punk album. So people really related to it. It wasn't mm-hmm. even, it didn't sound good. It sounded like Nirvana bleach. I mean, it was just like, okay, this is a dirty garage recording, but it worked. So anyway, we have this this connection here, and I don't know, even at this stage of my life, I don't really know what I believe anymore. When you say you don't really know what you believe anymore, like what, what are kind of the, the core things that make you go, I, do, I don't have like a foundation to sort of build on? Like where, where are the, the ends of the threads, you know, that you've pulled and that have kind of reached, what, what are those main ones? Have you figured out kind of like a intelligent um, design. I do believe there's an intelligent design. I believe this is way, we just, our bodies alone are way, way too complicated, even at 6 billion years. So I do believe in a God. If I'm going to be taken to church, I typically would go to a Christian church because that's where we go. You know, that's what I was introduced to, but I don't, I don't like to go in most modern churches. It's very Dr. Phil. Like you're not even getting like their opinion or thought on scripture. You're getting like a feel good message to take into the week. Like, yeah. what is your position on this issue? What is your position on hell? Like, talk about the things that are possibly going to alienate the people that are here. So I know where you actually stand. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. Yeah, this is um actually, this is a, I had a very interesting thing. Interesting thing happened to one of my friends who was going into, um, he was really interested in this evangelical church and he was spending a lot more time there. He thought I had a lot of really good stuff to offer. And I didn't want to like tell him like not to go, mm. but we were also close friends. So I wanted to make sure I was honest with him. And he was, and he knew that I had a really bad experience. So he was like, so, you know, tell me like, what, what should I be on the lookout for? And I told him, well, you know, there's a couple of things like, you know, there's a lot of times where like, they will say that they are like super welcoming and everybody's welcome here, but they're not like really, because it, it's in the sense of they don't agree with what your definition of welcoming would be. All right. So obviously a hot button topic for that is the LGBTQ community. So and the way to tell that for um, a church is basically, do they have a statement on the website that affirms marriage? Um, they don't, most of them won't have anything, which is the main signal that they're not. Because if they did, it would be have been a huge deal and it would be all over their their site. Right. Um, so I just kind of walked them through that basically like this is so the because he's a therapist, right? So okay. I was like, you know, because like a lot of his patients are LGBT people. And so he wants to make sure that like, you know, he's not doing something that is going to like, like it, that he's supporting sure. that in some way. Um, so I walked him through that and so I told him like, you know, they're, what they're going to say is that they, they really love everybody, but like, this is not going to be the same definition that you have, but it's not going to be like outwardly said. Um, and I just showed him the website, kind of pulled it up. Like, here's the mission statements. Here's their beliefs. They don't have anything about marriage or if they do, it's like marriage is something between a man and a woman. It doesn't say that it excludes, you know, other people. Um, but 
That's the implication mm. because it's such a hot button issue that they would have mentioned it if they did. Um, so anyway, so six months pass, um, maybe a year passes, uh, almost a year. Um, and it, exactly what I said happened. He finally like got up to some of the higher levels of people and it was exactly like that. Mm -hmm. um, and he was really surprised. He was like, oh my God, but this is, this is like exactly what Luke said was going to happen. Um, so that was really, really interesting and, and, you know, and sad too, that like, that was the experience of somebody, you know, going into that world who like honestly had a lot to offer, but there was no real openness, um, you know, to that, to that viewpoint. Luke. We have covered a lot of ground and we haven't even talked about your music yet. So, <laughs> Dude, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> I mean, we could literally talk on that topic for a whole hour, but yeah. But I really want to get into your music a little bit because you got the show coming up. When was the date again? Uh, January 28th. Okay. Uh, 5.30 is the, um, the pre-show party where people get the two free drinks. Uh, you can't get two free drinks at the record. So for everybody listening, just make sure you, if you come to the show... When you're there at seven or after and you're at the record, do not ask for free drinks. They know nothing about this. Yeah. They will not be happy. Um, so, but yeah, um, come to the pre-party. Um, we're going to have, you know, uh, we're going to try to set up some other stuff too. We're like, you know, sign up for the email list and you get like a free merch pack, stuff like that. How do you approach music? What is your writing process? I'm very curious mm. about that because, you know, how do you make like a sexy pop rock song, but also infuse some of these themes that are kind of heavy and not really anything anybody wants to think about when they're listening <laughs> yeah. to a pop rock song. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess what I've released so far um, has not been quite as like on the nose about anything. Right. And most of that stuff that I wrote, there's uh, like more time and need a little love. And those are, you know, love songs. Um, I can't say I wrote that really before I started to deconstruct. Um, although that became kind of like this weird, like, foreshadowing mm. in a lot of ways, which is why I put it at the beginning of the album, um, because it represented that part of my life, but also because it was literally like saying, I can't say which way the wind will blow or if the stars will come out tomorrow. I can't say how it is or how it will be, because that's not up to me. Um, but I can say that everything's going to get better, that everything's going to be all right. One day we'll wake up and this will be a dream. And the irony is that the, the way that I, I, I wrote it for more like my friends, um, because again, as a Christian, I was like, ah, oh, like one day, like, it's going to be okay. Like one day we'll wake up, this will be all better and everything. Mm. Um, and I didn't realize that I was really much more so writing that, like predicting my own, like literally talking about my own future. Uh, cause that's exactly what happened is that now I look back at it and it almost feels like, like this weird dream that I was in. Yes. Um, and a memory moments, like a dream. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and like, that wedding I went to over the weekend, it was a Christian wedding. And I thought I'd moved a lot farther past this stuff, but it was really hard for me to be in that, especially when they started doing like, they started singing like, here I am to worship. I was literally sitting next to um, one of the guitarists from my youth group that is still in that. Um, and he was like raising his hand in that like wedding service. And it was like taking me back to the moments where I was playing on the drums next to him playing his guitar and we were fully in it together mm. just how far everything had come and it was like a real moment of clarity um so anyway uh, a lot of these songs are you know uh they've been released so far not so much about the um the the loss of faith but they kind of set the stage for some of the other aspects that played into this whole dynamic which to quickly kind of sum up what i'm trying to get across um for the album is this idea that there's a lot of emotional neglect 
that I experienced um, as a kid, both from my parents and other people. Um, and it's tough because you really can't even have those conversations. I, mm -hmm. I'm assuming even probably even now, right? Well, so that's actually, that's a whole other thing. But my family, thankfully, has kind of largely moved out of a lot of this stuff. Oh, good. So we've been able to experience some more healing there. There's still a long way to go, but like none of us are really super part of the church anymore. My little brother is like a little bit into it, but not like he was never super into it. Um, but the the basic narrative is like for my life is that the emotional neglect that I experienced where there's these unmet needs kind of set up the situation for me to be um, really hurt in the church because of the way that I use the church to meet these different needs. And that drove the way that uh, I interpreted a lot of the stuff that they taught um, and mm -hmm. way I internalized it. Um, and so those things, and that, that's, you know, things like my need for, you know, validation to be seen, to be uh, unconditionally cared for, to have my feelings be valid. Um, all these kind of things I was trying to get met through uh, the church um, and the social interactions and stuff that was happening there. And I kind of got that met in a lot of ways for a long time, and then eventually it really fell apart. And so I blamed the Christianity for a long time as like the thing. Um, and now I look at more so like there was a fundamental thing that was going on there that was the reason why, you know, Christianity took was able to kind of take advantage of me in that way and really, you know, kind of uh, got such deep roots in my life. And so the the album itself, when it comes to the series and the, the order of the songs, really kind of sets that up where, um, you know, I can't say is about like, essentially when your eyes are opened and you realize like, oh, this lens that I, you know, see the, the world through is not the real lens. Like I took this off and oh my God, I have no idea what to do. Um, and that's actually the, you asked me to bring like an object. And so that's what I yeah. brought was the, the monocle from the series, which nice. um, this thing is like super symbolic. Yeah. You, you pull it out in the car. In the, exactly. I think the first video. Yep. It's just like randomly in this, you know, bag from uh, this coffee shop that I used yeah. to love to go to. And like, what is this? And I like look through the monocle and all of a sudden I, every, now I can see things that I could never see before, like these crazy planets in the sky. I love it. You know, all that kind of stuff. And what it represents is this idea that I used to think that I saw the world clearly, but I only saw through a lens. Yeah. Um, so that kind of starts off that. Um, and then after that, it kind of goes into some of the more like, how did, like, where did my like relationships with like women and who I was interested in, you know, kind of come into play mm. and what did those look like? And that's essentially a lot of like the codependency for how that emotional neglect played out. Now that has played into the songs. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. that's where like um, more time while I originally wrote it more so about like a friend's relationship, mm -hmm. obviously you always write things in a way where you're injecting like your perception and parts of yourself that you're projecting. Um, and so a lot of that was there, you know, uh, for me when it comes to that song. And some of that's, you know, kind of introduced, like the lady in red is introduced in that video. And she kind of represents the the the, the uh, woman that I always like wanted and kind of idealized that I would mm. find. Um, if you notice, like she's wearing the monocle, like, um, and I, so I, after the first, you know, episode's over, I wake up in my own bed and like none of it's like real, right? And I discover like, as I go back through life, oh my God, it is real or what is, or it could what, be. Or it could be. Like, yeah. what is real? And so she has this monocle on her, which is part of what makes me go, like, what in the world is going on? Um, and it's kind of helped, like, uh, slowly the, the reality is, like, setting in as more true. And this is part of what I would do in my life. I would, you know, I would 
find something that like, oh my God, like, I don't know how to reconcile this. And I would basically like shut down. Um, and so, and I would shut down and uh, kind of repress and not actually deal with what it was. And then over time, these things would get actually put in front of me over and over again, as they do in life. And eventually, you know, kind of you come to a place of having to really deal with that. And you can't just keep, you know, shutting it down. Yeah. But you see that again in the next episode um, in Need a Little Lovin', where, you know. Which we are going to hear at the end. Sweet. It's Woo! a great song, man. Thanks, man. It is so catchy. So um, so we see that a lot in this, in the in chapter uh, three as well for Need a Little Lovin'. Um, multiple different types of trauma responses. Um, the first is like the coping, like the constant need and chasing of this woman that I believe is going to like fill this need that I have. Um, and I essentially have kind of no control in this process. Like I'm following after her, trying to get to her. And once I actually try to get to her, I run and jump and like get frozen in the middle of the air. She's the one in complete control. I literally have nothing I can do. She just like touches. And like, I'm just like, oh my God, like I can't do anything. And then there's some stuff that happens with um, my brother and my friend Gurpreet, who is this uh, um, Indian uh, singer, the Punjabi singer on there, where you know, where all of us are interacting. And at the end, there's this weird moment, like everything gets really creepy and strange. Like this was this beautiful thing. Like what is, what, what is destroying this moment? There's some insidious sort of energy and they pull out their own lenses, right? And their, their own monocles that are different from mine, which represent like the way that they see the world and they're holding it in front of me. And, you know, what, what could be something that is just a beautiful moment of sharing um, because of my perception and my need for the for how for how I try to get my needs met to feel safe, I look at those and I see them as threats. And so there's this like crazy moment of like this intense, you know, these fiery eyes where they basically turn to these monsters that are holding out these lenses. Uh, and it's like this trauma response that's yeah. going on for me. So you're actually working these themes into the visual. Oh yeah, component. it's like this, not necessarily yeah. the song. Exactly. Yeah, that's so, awesome. And so and so in that moment, like. What happens is I eventually close my eyes and like just completely try to, I try to pretend that it's not real and eventually like actually shut it down, um, which is like me like really repressing and shutting that stuff deep down so I don't have to feel or experience any of that, which is part of what I did. Did you know that Metallica is putting out an album called 72 Seasons? No. And the thing about that album is the, the tie-in is that the theory is basically we constantly relive the first 18 years of our lives from different perspectives. So it's just kind of a cool tie. Oh, I'll have to Because I started thinking about it. I was like, that's kind of true. Like, mm-hmm. the, it's always been in the art, but the way I'm approaching with it, I think is getting healthier and healthier and healthier. It's not F this, F that, whatever. Yeah. It's a little bit more grounded. Totally. I so, think it's an awesome video theme. So, And you got nine more of these to go. Yeah. So there's a, it's a huge, huge, it's huge. project. Um, I, this is a, a pattern in my life where I bit off like way more than I'm actually prepared to chew at that moment. Yeah. Which is part of why like I started this like two years ago and there's an ATV accident I got into. I had to heal from it. God, took, it looked like it took a while. You <laughs> took an ax to the head, man. It, I was yeah, wondering was, what that was. I was like, holy shit, man. Yeah. I flew off an ATV in, in Montana, got oh. a pretty bad concussion and fractured my hip. So, um, and then like, again, like you had a gash in your head. Yeah. Gash my head too. Uh, so I got staples and stuff up there. So it was pretty painful and that put a delay in the whole thing. But I mean, honestly, like those episodes are expensive, even though like I'm directing and doing, you know, most of the work for those episodes, um, to, you know, location scout, schedule everything, you know, find the right people, um, get everybody actually on board, figure out how to fund the whole thing. 
um, the directing, the uh, editing, the uh, visual effects, um, and the storyboarding, like all that's and the color, like all that kind of stuff is all directly, you know, stuff that and, and music and sound effects, like mm. you know, follow the foley, like all that stuff is is me. It still costs me about like three thousand dollars at least to do each video. Oh my god! And that's where those grants have come in helpful because at least gives me like something towards it. And I applied for a, a bigger film grant. I'm hoping I'm going to get what. I don't know that I'm officially eligible, but um, basically, it, it it's a massive scale where I I'm really excited about it, but also makes it challenging. And at, at that time, if I had tried to keep doing it at the rate that I wanted to, I definitely would have been a lot more in debt. Mm. Um, and because of all right. the promotion, and everything, dude, I was like, I was like twenty five thousand, twenty six thousand dollars in credit card debt last year. Uh, it took me the whole year to pay it off, which I was really proud of the fact I got that far. Hey, man. Um, and now we're at this place where I can kind of start doing it again. So it's be cool to kind of keep, you know, creating that stuff. And so to kind of back into the the way that this this story is unfolding, there's the emotional neglect, which sets up where we are now mm. um, in the series. And the next song is about more so my insecurity. Um and slowly we're going to we're going to kind of start to close this loop on the emotional neglect and the, the obsession over um a romantic relationship um and we're going to get more into like the like religious type stuff and this is not some of this is going to be a little bit on the nose i don't want it to be too much on the nose it's going to play through more in the and the and the lens through the lens of death and resurrection versus like necessarily a lot that's like super Jesus specific. Um, and part of that's because like, I don't, I think it's, I think it's more powerful when you tell a narrative without um, like all the specifics, like it's there if you know to look for it. Right. Um, but also like, there's a lot of people that I would alienate if I go hyper specific and just say, this is about like, like I'm some sort of anti-Christian. Um, but the truth is like, there's a much more powerful story that's being told here where like if i where, where it's it's actually ironically there's so many parallels to the gospel this idea of me dying to my old self and coming back alive being born again um as this person who can now see things more clearly um and that's and that's basically like this entire loss of identity and sense of self that over time um, you heal from and, and rebuild into this new person. And that's a universal experience for almost everybody if you actually have the courage to really live your life. Well, they they really plant that seed of what if I'm wrong? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that makes it very difficult to get to that place where you rebuild yourself. You're happy with who you are. But what if I'm wrong? Right. Yeah. Totally. Because the consequences are so fear. crazy. Yeah. And even though like it's like it's 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 easy to to hear the idea that like, well, you know, but what about every other religion? We're not, you're not obsessed with proving that like, you know, what, what if I'm wrong about Allah, right? Like, right. I don't care about that. I only care about this because that's what I was, you know, brought up in. Right. Um, still, you know, obviously it's still a real thing. That thought can help a little bit, but it doesn't like solve, you know, that, that problem. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been awesome having you on the show. I could literally, I, so I, I typically come with a couple pages of general questions. I got through three of six. <laughs> so that that's where we landed. Um, I'd like to have you back. That'd be great, if man. If you willing to come to. back. Yeah. LJR performing live at the Record Theater on January 28th. We're going to hear Need a Little Lovin', which I think we all do for sure. <laughs> and uh, just appreciate you being on the show, man. And being Definitely. candid. Thanks, Brad. Because this is not easy stuff to talk about. So. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thanks yeah. for having me. It was great.